Hey guys, um, my name is Sean, um, and I'll be doing the reading the Bible for today. Um, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up, and um, yeah, we'll get you a Bible and your Bible. Um, we'll be reading uh, Jeremiah 52. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's in the middle of the Bible, around about after Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah. Yeah. Yep. So that's Jeremiah 52. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutah, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped it outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some, some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the twelve bronze bulls under it, 
and the movable stands which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on the top of one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its pomegranates was similar. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. The total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was 100. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and seven royal advisers. He also took the secretary who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, 60 of whom were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity, away from her land. This is the number of people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, 823 people from Jerusalem. In his 23rd year, the Jews, 745 Jews taken into exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Imperial Guard. There were 4,600 people in all. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Awel Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour, higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. Thanks, Sean. You know, there's an old story about a psychology lecturer uh, whose class decided to turn the tables on him. And what they decided to do is that at the beginning of the semester, every time he looked to one side of the lecture theatre, everyone would nod enthusiastically and smile. And every time he looked to the other side of the lecture theatre, they'd all frown and just disengage. And slowly over the course of the semester, they made it so that he only ever lectured on this side of the room until he was right at the door because of the way they manipulated him. And I'm looking at this lecture theatre and I'm wondering whether or not you guys have been doing the same thing to me over this semester or not. I'm not entirely sure. But there you go. There's some things and reflections there to be had on the design of buildings and where we put entrances. Uh, That has nothing to do with today's talk, but I thought I'd indulge you. Um, Sorry when we run late. Um, Congratulations. We are at the end. We got through the longest book of the Bible and we did it in 12 weeks. And hopefully it was some measure of engaging for you. Uh, And even though it dealt with a very heavy topic repetitively, uh, we've gotten some real gold out of it and a non-repetitious or at least in a non-boring way. Uh, Today we hit the end of the book of Jeremiah, the final chapter. We just read out the whole thing because I wanted us to see exactly how the story ends. 
Uh, And to guess into it, I actually want to ask the question, have you ever felt like you don't belong? I don't know about you, I feel like that's a common experience for most of us. Uh, At some point in our lives, maybe even now, we feel like we don't belong. In fact, it's such a serious thing for people of your generation that we ran a whole semester mission about it earlier on in the year. Uh, Because we wanted to tap into the fact that this seems to be at the basis, or at least some part of who we are at our core. Now, I can remember the most recent time where I felt like I didn't belong. I was at a three-year-old's birthday party. Uh, That wasn't why. Uh, I felt quite kind of level maturity-wise, quite quite happy there. But I got into a conversation with some of the dads, and they started to talk about mining uh, and and engineering. And that that wasn't a problem for me, because that's the kind of stuff that that I kind of was trained in. But as the conversation continued, they started to talk about money and and billionaires and, and that whole kind of world of people and how they operated Uh, that I had no idea about. And as the conversation progressed and I made my contributions, they were greeted with kind of knowing smiles, sometimes ignored, sometimes, oh, that's not quite right. And so slowly but surely, I kind of got moved to the edge of the lecture theatre, if you will. Uh, And they were nice people, they weren't being rude, but it was just, I didn't belong. I did not belong. Uh, And that's true of all of us, isn't it? It might be in social settings with our friends. Uh, it might be within our own families. Uh, one of the saddest songs I've ever heard was about a man who felt he didn't belong in his own body. Uh, but whatever it is, that, that feeling of not belonging kind of follows us, doesn't it? Uh, and I think for the Christian, that's particularly exacerbated because no matter where we are, no matter how well we get along with people, there's something about the way that, that we view the world that, that Jesus has done in our hearts to change the way that we perceive things that means no matter how well we connect with people, there's always something that jars, always something that contradicts, always something that makes us feel like we're a bit on the outer. Now, we'll get to that a little bit later on in the talk, but this is another thing that doesn't belong. Chapter 52 of Jeremiah. Uh, I don't know whether you kind of realise it, but it's sort of a weird way to end a book, right? You've had 51 chapters of poetry and prophecy and beautiful, elaborate language, and then you just get a history dump right at the end. Uh, It might interest you to know that this chapter that we just got read out is actually almost word-for-word copied from the book of Two Kings. It's the last chapter and a half of Two Kings. Uh, And so it kind of feels like basically somebody kind of got halfway uh, through an essay, maybe 90%, then goes, oh, I'm getting tired, I'm getting tired. They went, you know what, I'll stuff this. I'm just going to cut and paste something from the internet, you know, go through ChatGPT, cut, paste, submit, not going to think about it. That's what this feels like as you read it. But because we believe that God's word is not the product of lazy university students, uh, but inspired by the spirit of God, we're not going to ignore it and fail it, but we are going to ask why. Why is it that Jeremiah ends the book this way? And the first step to answering that question uh, is to consider the two audiences of Jeremiah. This is the first main heading in your outline there. Uh, You see, a long time ago in a CBT far, far away, when we looked at Jeremiah chapter 1, one of the unusual features we notice about this book is that it's written to two different groups of people. In the first instance, you had Judah in Judah. And then in the second instance, you had Judah in exile. Now, for Judah and Judah, that sort of makes sense. This is the group of people who were in Jerusalem before it got destroyed and they were taken off into exile in Babylon. And we know that it was written to Judah in Judah because the majority of what we read in the book of Jeremiah is addressed to them. It's dated, it's directed, uh, and it's filled with warnings to listen to God or else they'll be destroyed. And so over the course of the semester, we have been reading Jeremiah with that first audience primarily in view. We have, right? We've been grappling with the concept of God's judgment, the rightness of that judgment, the reasons for that judgment, the relevance for that judgment, not just for them then, but for us 
today. But to fully understand the book of Jeremiah, we also need to consider the second audience. And I want to suggest that this is actually the primary audience, the audience that Jeremiah is written for. It's Judah in exile. This is the group of people now living in Babylon after Jerusalem has been destroyed. This is the survivors. And so even though we have individual oracles throughout Jeremiah addressed to Judah in Judah, it's actually clear that the book of Jeremiah in its completed and finished state is not just for the first audience, it's actually for the second. And one of the reasons we know this is because of chapter 52. So have a look at the last verse of chapter 51. The last verse of chapter 51, how does it end? It says, the words of Jeremiah end here. But then there's a whole other chapter. And so what this tells us is that what we have in front of us isn't just a series of like blog posts that Jeremiah kind of chronologically just kind of put up on the internet in the lead up to Jerusalem's fall. But it's actually a a, a work of literature that has been shaped and arranged for a purpose after the exile has taken place. And we know that because the stuff that Sean just read for us in chapter 52 recounts things that happened historically well after that event, at least 25 years. And so somebody, presumably maybe even Jeremiah himself, they're sitting in a room in Babylon in exile somewhere and they're collecting all of these different prophecies all the way through Jeremiah's ministry and they're putting it together in a way that communicates a message, not to Judah in Judah, but to Judah in exile. And that's why it's not in chronological order. It's been arranged It has a purpose beyond the individual bits and pieces that kind of is put together. Now, if that boggles the mind, that's completely okay. Because it raises a question, I think, for us, doesn't it? Can we even trust Jeremiah if that's the case? Because I thought this was the one thing that you weren't supposed to do with the Bible. You know, kind of take bits, cut and paste, kind of rearrange and and, and put it together. Uh, But what we can kind of do with this is really interesting stuff. Jesus himself affirmed that the Old Testament that we have in its finished form is the word of God completely trustworthy. And so what that tells us is that, weirdly, it's not just the writers of the Old Testament that are inspired by God, but it's editors as well. And what that means for us is that the arrangement of the material is just as important as its content. Uh, It's why we pay so much attention to context in our small groups on campus when we study a passage, because the thing that you're looking at, that kind of 10-verse section or whatever, isn't all there is to the picture. It forms a link in a chain of things in an argument that could be very different in the big picture to what the passage might be saying in isolation. And that's actually one of the reasons why we've preached Jeremiah in sections this semester. We haven't kind of cherry-picked interesting chapters and kind of cool metaphors and stuff. Uh, We've actually done it in blocks. And that doesn't kind of lead to well-crafted talks that are easy to digest. But we did that because we want you to see that the book in its final form is communicating a message to us. And if we don't do that and see that bigger picture and and how it connects to one another, then what we'll do is misunderstand it and therefore misapply it. And so as we hit chapter 52, we need to ask the question, what is it that the exiles in Judah needed to hear? What was the editor, the person who put it together, wanting to communicate? And I think there are two things. You ready for them? They're there on your outline. The first thing is that what God says will happen, happens. And then the second is this. What God says will happen, will happen. If that's confusing, just kind of bear with me and we'll get there eventually. So let's have a look at that first one. What God says will happen, happens. We see this in verses 1 to 30. Now, I think there are two reasons why we suddenly have this cut and paste, kind of vaguely plagiarised kind of thing going from 2 Kings into Jeremiah 52. 
Uh, The first reason for why this chapter is here is that it gives us a reason for the exile. Uh, Think about it, right? You have a whole collection of prophecies about what's going to happen in the future. And then you take an account of history and you plonk it right down next to it. And what's it saying? It's saying that this has led to this. What was spoken about in the past and predicted has now happened, which means the reasons that were discussed for why this was happening are the real reasons. And we see that at the beginning of our chapter. Uh, We see how it's framed. Uh, He doesn't start, notice, with a historical description of what happens. That actually starts in verse 3. The history starts in verse 3 by saying, Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon in the ninth year of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem. There's the historical cause and effect. Rebellion put down. But look at how it's framed there in verse 1. This is how the chapter begins. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. Another Jeremiah must have been a popular name back then. Uh, She was from Libna. And he, key verse, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. And so with that framing set of verses, we now know that everything that follows from this point, even if it's a historical record, is meant to be understood from this perspective. God is enacting his judgment on the sin of his people. So what happens? How does that play out? Well, you can break the chapter down into several key events. You start with the framing verses, but then in verses 4 to 11, you see the king captured and killed. Verses 12 to 16, Jerusalem, including the temple, is destroyed. Verse 17 to 23, the temple treasures are plundered. And then finally, in verse 24 to 30, we see Judah's leaders uh, executed and the rest of the people are taken into exile. That's the historical account of the judgment of God against the sin of Judah. Now, when we arrange like that, it's really important because this isn't the only account of the fall of Jerusalem we have in the Bible. Uh, By my count, there's at least four. uh, And another one, not just Jeremiah 52, is in Jeremiah. It's in chapter 39. And when we look at chapter 39, we see that there is some similarities in terms of the historical reporting. First couple of verses of chapter 39, you see the king captured and killed Jerusalem, destroyed. But that's when things start to get different. Because instead of more things about the exile, we actually see more things about the word of God. Do you remember back to that talk? Jeremiah survives. Ebek Melech obeys the word and so he's saved. But that's not the note of victory we see here in chapter 52. In chapter 52, we have an emphatic um, kind of kind of highlighting of the fact that this nation has been judged and has now gone into exile. It's an emphasis on judgment. And we compare that then to the other account that we have of the fall of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 24 we actually see that it's almost verbatim word for word, but there are two sections that are different. And one of them, which is the one circled up there on the screen, is the additional emphasis in Jeremiah 52 of the people who got taken into exile. All the numbers of people, on and on it goes. And so what that tells us then uh, is that this book is addressed to the exiles and it is emphasising their situation and in particular the reason that they find themselves there in a foreign nation licking their wounds with their entire world and life having been torn apart. So that's the first reason we have chapter 52. It's giving us a reason for the exile, a theological explanation of what's happened in history to these people of God. But the second reason, and I think this is actually leading towards the primary reason, is that it demonstrates the fulfilment of God's word. 
They're similar, but they are distinct, which is why I want to hold them together. Because attaching the prophecies and the history doesn't just provide an explanation of what's happened. It also shows that what God said would happen, happened. It's almost like an I told you so. You know, I warned you that that was going to happen if you touched the possum. But here we are in the emergency room with bandages all over you. It's like, you know, come on, like just I said it and now here's the evidence. And so by coming along and cutting and pasting the history here, it says to the exiles that everything that's happened here should not have been a surprise to you because it was all prophesied by Jeremiah. Uh, And I think this is really significant. Lots of people that I've come across become Christians on the basis of the fact that they see God's word predict things and then they come true. Uh, Most certainly in the person of Jesus with all of the centuries of prophecy about him and then he suddenly comes on board. But we can see it here in Jeremiah as well. So, for example... uh, Uh, We'll come back to that. Um, Head over in your Bibles to chapter 21. Chapter 21. Keep your finger in chapter 52 because we will be coming back. But uh, Jeremiah 21. And let's have a look from verse 3. This is Jeremiah speaking to Zedekiah at the beginning of the siege. This is 18 months before everything goes down. Verse 3, Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials... And the people in this city who survived the plague, sword and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. Uh, And this is virtually what happens in our historical account in chapter 52. What God says through Jeremiah will happen, happens. So in chapter 52, verse 6, there's a famine. Verse 7, they break into the city. Verse 8, they capture the king despite the fact that he tries to escape. Verse 10, without mercy or pity or compassion, Nebuchadnezzar kills the sons of Zedekiah. He kills the officials of Jerusalem and he puts out the eyes of the king and sends him into exile. What about the other events? Well, let's have a think about the destruction of Jerusalem. If we keep reading, actually, in chapter 21, this time from verse 8, uh, we see, furthermore, tell the people this. Uh, uh, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. And, and where it ends up here is in verse 10. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. And what God says will happen, happens. It's not just true for the king, it's not just true for the city, it's also true for the temple being plundered. We see that in chapter 27. And it's also true for the people getting sent into exile. For example, that's in chapter 20, verse 4. And the point here is simply this. What God says will happen, happens. Now, if that sounds depressing, I don't blame you. But here's the weird mind cycle of this passage. That's actually supposed to be comforting for the people in exile. It's a source of hope because if what God says will happen happens, then the things that God has said will happen that haven't happened yet are also going to happen. And that leads us to the second thing that the exiles need to hear. What God says will happen will happen too. 
And we get a whole bunch of things uh, that kind of suggest this. I think there are two in the passage. One's a kind of a glimmer of hope. The other's a grand beam of hope. The glimmer of hope is the temple treasures. I don't know whether you start to kind of roll your eyes in that long Bible reading. You get to this point where all of a sudden you've got like these, these temple articles being described and pomegranates and lanks and weights and stuff. And it's like, come on, this is just like, we, we could have shortened this. We could have gotten out earlier and gotten to spend some more time at the ref. Why would they do that? Why would they, in a historical account, take so much time to describe with utter detail all of the temple treasures? Well, the answer is in something that Jeremiah said 20 years before that time in chapter 27. We won't read it all, but have a look at that last verse. He's talking about the articles of the temple. And God says they'll be taken to Babylon and there they will remain until the day I come for them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So why do you need a detailed inventory of everything that's stolen? Because one day you're going to go into a room and pick it all up, tick it all off the list and bring it back home. What God says will happen, will happen. But that's just the glimmer of hope. What about the great big beam? Well, the great big beam is right at the end of the chapter in verses 31 to 34. So this is back in chapter 52. Now I have to say, if you thought chapter 52 was a weird way to end Jeremiah... These verses are a weird way to end chapter 52. Have a look at what they say. We've just heard all this horrible stuff. People have been killed, murdered, and taken into exile. They become statistics. And then we read this. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year of Al-Mardak, became king of Babylon. On the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. Now, this is surprising because the only thing that we've heard about Jehoiachin so far in the book of Jeremiah have been negative things. He's kind of hard to track because he goes by a few names. Maybe he's that kind of shady, shifty individual. We know him as Jehoiachin. We know him as Jeconiah or we know him as Kaniah. Presumably that's some, some of his friends called him that, you know, kind of shortened his name or whatever it is. But wherever he turns up with whatever name, it is always bad. He's one of the last kings of Judah, if you remember. We tend to forget about him because he only ruled for three months between Jehoiakim, his dad, and Zedekiah. But one thing is clear is that even though he only had three months to do it, he he was doing evil things and so God punishes him. Nebuchadnezzar turns up, takes him into exile and puts Zedekiah on the throne instead of him. But here, and this is why it's surprising, we're seeing a reversal of that judgment. He, an evil one that God has judged, is released from prison, spoken to kindly and then given a seat of honour above all the other kings of the earth. And so you've got to scratch your head at that point and just kind of go, why the heck is this here? What is it about being in exile in Judah that means this matters to you? And the way that we answer that question is to ask another one. What is it that the word of God has promised that will happen that hasn't happened yet? Think about it for a moment. What are some of the things we've seen this semester that God has promised but have yet to come to pass? I think the most obvious one is in chapter 23. He promises to bring them back from exile. And in particular, looking there at verse 5, he promises that he will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, do what is just and right in the land, and bring his people back with that king at at their head. See, God promises that he will return them from exile. 
But how do you fulfill that promise? Well, you need a descendant of David, don't you? And so long as the Davidic line continues, there is hope. And this is why the release of Jehoiachin was so important for the exiles in Babylon. Because it marks a shift in the currents of history and in the fortune of God's people. You see, they're still in exile, but now their king, after 37 years rotting in a prison cell, is not only dining with the king of the world, the most powerful man in the world, but he's in a seat of honour higher than all the other kings who are with him in Babylon. And you've got to say this is clearly a work of God, because Judah, it was not a significant kingdom. Uh, if you kind of listed the, 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 the kings in the world, international politics, it was a nothing nation. And so if this new king of Babylon kind of came in and wanted to walk back the things that his predecessors had done and try to get everyone back in his good books, you don't start with Judah. And yet here is the king of Judah regularly eating at the king of Babylon's table. And so by including this section right at the end of the chapter, what we're being told is that while this might be the end of the book, it's not the end of the story. Not for the people of God. God is at work. His word, it's torn down the nation, but his word will rebuild that nation as well, just as he said, because what God says will happen, will happen. That's the reasoning. We've seen some stuff he said, it's happened, so well, there's some stuff outstanding. All we have to do is wait. And so if you're in exile in Babylon, the message of chapter 52 was simple. Watch and wait. Now, in a couple of days, you guys are about to have some exams. So I thought I'd kind of give you some unsolicited advice. Um, do you want to know how I got through my exams? Uh, really simple. I'd look at the calendar and I'd look at the last day of my exam and I'd count backwards, 14, 15 days, whatever it is, to where I am now. And I'd say to myself, no matter what happens, no matter how stressed I get, no matter how tired I get, in 15 days, it'll all be over. All I have to do is wait. Might do some study as well, but all I have to do is wait. Because I knew that there was a point somewhere on the horizon, the steady march of time that nobody could disrupt or change, where everything that I was feeling would now disappear. And it would give way to glorious, wonderful, restful freedom and hopefully a pass mark. And this is what the book of Jeremiah says to the exiles in the midst of their exams. It sucks. It's not right. You're hard done by. How dare they assess you? But one day God will come and deliver you from your plight because what God says will happen will happen. And all you have to do is wait. And that assurance that is given to the the exiles in Judah is also for us in Perth as well. Because if you're a Christian, the Bible makes very clear to you that you are in exile as well. You live in a world that stands against everything Jesus and you stand for. Perth may be, uh, it might be a foreign nation, it might be your home soil, but there is a very real and profound sense in which you do not belong. And you can do one of two things in response to that. You can try and belong, but that's the path of compromise. You kind of go, well, okay, this is really awkward, so instead of like kind of... Uh, um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to join in that conversation. I'm going to join the conversation. I'm going to get interested in money. I'm going to get interested in how to make money and do all these sorts of things and, and, and basically try and move away from the things that Jesus calls you to do. Or you can do the second option, which is the option that God pleads with you to take in this chapter, and that's to sit in exile, to sit in the angst and the frustration of the situation, and instead of kind of make measures to compromise and change what you're feeling, to wait there in that angst, for God to come and take you out of it. 
And the Bible gives us good reason to choose the second uncomfortable option rather than the easy first option. Uh, And even more so than the people in exile, because we today as Christians have more reason to believe that what God says will happen, will happen. And that's because we live later on in the story. Um, Last thing to turn to, this is uh, Matthew chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. I don't know what page it is. And so if you guys are struggling to get it, turn to the person next to you and they'll help you. Um, Never leave a man behind when we're flipping through the Bible. Matthew chapter 1. And I'll show you something really, really cool. Uh, If you don't know, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus. This is the Christ, the King that God promises, the Son of David. Uh, And this is the one who will lead his people out of exile. And I want to show you the genealogy that leads to him. Uh, Having a look at verse 6. So you see there that King David is mentioned. So this is where we get that root of Jesse, root of David thing. Uh, And and Jesse is the father of David. And David was the father of Solomon. And then verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And and track with me here. It goes Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon. And then we get to verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. Who's that? And his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. This is Jehoiachin. This is the king that was released at the end of Jeremiah. And if you follow the genealogy, it takes you all the way to Jesus. And so here's the privilege of living in the time that you live in. Because you have seen what the exiles in Judah could only ever dream of. All that God promised that he would do through his king, he has done. He sent him into the world. He forged a new covenant with his people by his blood. He removed them out of the exile of sin and death by forgiving us at the cross. By his spirit, he renews us and writes his law upon our hearts. In fact, the only thing that he has not done that he said he would do is send Jesus back to deliver us finally and completely from exile in this world, out of these bodies of death and out of this world of sin and rebellion. It is the only thing we are waiting for. And so that's the encouragement of today's chapter. Because far from being a depressing or boring piece of history, it is actually a call to great confidence and hope. Because it reminds us that the divine word that has been fulfilled in the past will be fulfilled in the future. And because of our privileged position in history, we have more reason to believe it than the exiles in Judah did. And that helps us, doesn't it? It helps us as we grapple with some of our experience in the world. Because as a Christian, you will not belong. And there'll be times where you will question the truth of what God says. And you'll ask whether or not living God's way is worth it. Whether suffering for his gospel is worth it. Whether doing the things like paying for parking tickets and stuff when nobody knows you can get away with it is worth it. Whether your efforts to share the gospel with your family and friends despite the fact it risks relationships is worth it. Those questions will come at you for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years And what God calls us to remember in these moments is that what God says will happen, will happen. And so to you, if you are worried, one day you're sitting there and you think, maybe Jesus has taken some time here. Maybe he's not coming back. God has said he will come back. If you are doing things for the Lord and seeking to make righteous decisions that honour him, even though it doesn't please the people around you and you are persecuted for it, you suffer injustice for it, you lose opportunities maybe at work, you lose friends maybe in family, God has said that when Jesus returns, he will bring you justice. 
you struggle with sin. Don't know whether it is. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe it's gossiping or, or, or some sort of sexual morality stuff. Or maybe it's just pride and judgmentalism. And you, you hate it, but it's there and you keep doing it. You love it, you hate it, you keep going back and forth. And you just agonize over the fact that you cannot escape your sinful inclinations. God has said that when Jesus returns, he will bring you lasting change. Maybe it's a situation, a chronic illness, a suffering, a disadvantage, whatever it is. God has promised that Jesus will return and bring you lasting change. Maybe you wonder, is it actually even worth doing all of these good things? God has promised that he will come and those works that you do will bring glory to the Lord Jesus when he is finally seen by the world as the king that God has given us. And you'll be rewarded. That is what God has said because it will happen Because God has said it will happen. So here's the wonderful thing about all of this. Even as we wrestle with not belonging, sitting in the angst and the frustration and the discomfort of exile, he's also said that he will enable you to endure that suffering and that angst and that exile. And so if I could kind of put my see you dad hat on for a little moment as we finish the talk, don't lose sight of this over the summer, will you? No, it sounds kind of kitsch, but be regular at your church. Be regular in reading your Bible. Be regular in prayer. Meet with your Christian friends. Don't get distracted. Four months is a long time before we'll see you again, certainly. Your church hopefully will see you every week. But it's very easy to be lulled into a sense that you are not in exile, but you're in paradise. But you're not. You are just as susceptible to sin, the influence and attacks of Satan as you are right now. So remember where you sit And remember the comfort that God gives you because what he says will happen, will happen. So decide to live in exile well. Uh, On behalf of the staff and I, we just want to say thank you. It's been a real pleasure being a part of your Christian walk and journey this year. We hope to have you back again, uh, especially if you're not graduating. Um, But just want to say bless you. uh, And we just hope that this time together has been really enriching uh, and stabilised and matured your journey with Jesus. We ask this all in Jesus' name, I suppose, if we're praying, but that's just an old habit of mine. So we'll just leave it at that, and I'll invite the um, the leader back up.